Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And you know, I, I named this podcast because of the Influence Continuum and people know me as a cult expert and undue influence expert. And so a lot of my stuff is focusing on the dark side of the Influence Continuum, but I'm so happy to introduce Julie Hartman to you. Uh, who's going to talk about ethical, positive parenting uh, things. Julie Hartman is a certified birth doula, a certified lactation counselor, and a new parent educator. And she supports families in the perinatal period through support groups, teaching classes on living with a newborn. And most importantly, she says, she's a mom to three adult children and can really connect with the people that she works with through shared experiences. And Julie, we, we sat and talked and you were telling me about your fascinating career and I invited you to the Influence Continuum and I'm grateful for your willingness to share your, your wisdom with my yeah. audience. Thank you so much, Steve, for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. And of course, I think we're both um, going to be in a, in a maybe in a domain that we're not used to, to, uh, you know, to working within. So I'm really looking forward to, to hearing uh, what you have to say about your world and how we how our worlds interconnect and certainly support one another. Yeah, so, so I'll just start by saying uh, my wife and I adopted a 22-month-old from Ukraine um, and uh, had all kinds of medical issues that we needed to deal with, and we missed that critical first two-year period that is mm -hmm. so well established that's critical for uh, secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And But you yeah. focus on that you know, perinatal, you know, pregnant, not yet giving birth to the birth to what do you do afterward? Yeah. And I just don't think the public has a clue of what to expect and what to do. And so that's why I really want you to share. And before we go too much further, I want you to explain what a doula is, what a lactation counselor is. Sure. Thank you so much. Let's Absolutely. go. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to to shout it from the mountaintops what doulas do, because I think it's an, a, a, a little understood, but such an important, could could really play such an important role in so many people's uh, births. I, I always say, I, I attribute this to a partner I used to have. She said that everybody deserves a doula for their birth and there's a right doula for everybody. So it's really about connecting on personality um, and learning style um, as to connecting a doula with a birthing family. But um, doulas are, are often confused with midwives, very, very different functionality. Midwives are highly, highly medically trained. Doulas are not, although most doulas probably could uh, could catch a baby, which um, I proudly say I have done several times uh -huh. um, on an emergency basis. But wow. um, doulas do not have any formal medical training, whereas midwives obviously have lots and lots of medical training. Doulas are really there for um, both in the prenatal period and during labor birth and in the postpartum period, um, are there to really support on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, the birthing family really encouraged through education prenatally, through lots and lots of reminders in the in the actual phase of labor and birth, um, really empower the family to speak up for themselves, advocate for themselves, have a shared 
you know, be part of the shared decision making of birth, um, especially hospital birth, which there is usually there are usually decisions that have to be made along along the way. And just knowing, understanding um, what those may be prenatally really does help in the heat of the moment. Um, so if I may interrupt, I'm going to sure. be, you know, most of my audience I'm imagining have questions like the ones I'm about to ask. So I'd like Please. to ask. So a yeah. doula is usually women. Doulas are always women, women with the, there is one male doula in the United States. Okay. So for very obvious reasons, I, I often, I, I'm all for it. But I really often wonder why anyone would choose to hire a male doula just because of, you know, just because of the 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 connection you hope to have, and and you know, okay. and on that note, most doulas are parents themselves, whether that they was my are next bio have biologically birthed children or have adoptive children. Most doulas do have children. Great. So yeah. And so it's very rare, very, very rare to have a to to have a male doula, but uh great. It does it, it, and is, does a, the it doula, is available if you want that. Does the doula spend a lot of time with the father of the baby or mostly with the mom? So in a in a heterosexual couple, yes, the we we call it we don't call it father or mother, we call it birthing partner and birthing person. So yeah. So um so I would say, Steve, that a a skilled doula, I don't want to say a good doula, a skilled doula will support the birthing partner to support the birthing person um, up and until the birthing partner needs a break from that. And then the, the doula can step in and be the primary person for a certain amount of time. But mm -hmm. um, there is um, a level of, um, you know, secure attachment that a couple has hopefully yeah um and that um when couples have that have that feeling of safety and security in the presence of each other um there is a huge flood of oxytocin that is exchanged and oxytocin is the is not only the it's probably the most important hormone to be present so that birth can be flowing and continual and have the woman feel or have the birthing person feel um, safe and secure. So we're looking for that connection that um, provides oxytocin surge in both the partner and the birthing person. And, um, and, and so say that, more so about that, that oxytocin, please, for our listeners. So I, oxytocin I, is a very important, it's often called the love hormone. Um, it is, people get surges of oxytocin when they're around people that they love through touch, through words, um, through, you know, oxytocin floods a person's body when they're having sex with someone that they love. Um, when they are touched by somebody that they love, it's really skin to skin contact. Mm -hmm. That's why immediately after birth, um, we we most most doulas and we're working on the hospitals um, to slow things down a little bit in the postpartum. I know we'll get to that a little later, but we recommend oxy for oxytocin to course through mom's body. That baby is put directly skin to skin on mom's mm -hmm. chest, birthing person's chest right after birth to um, to start that that connection, that bonding. Oxytocin is the catalyst 
for prolactin. Prolactin is the milk-making hormone. Mm. I know I'm getting way ahead no, of myself, I, this but... This is definitely yeah. important. I yeah, always but, thought of oxytocin as a bonding or trust hormone, too. Well, it serves a myriad of purposes. Yes. Under love, we can say trust and, and bonding are and very, safety. very... Safety and security are very important components because I would say, I would argue without all of those, you really can't have love. Yes. Um, and so, um, yeah, so oxytocin is very important. So, Great. yes, the doula should, doulas, most doulas meet, just to circle back to your question about about birthing partners, um, doulas will meet with the family um, prenatally you know, really hopefully establish a connection, a bond, an intimacy, mm. because it's going to be the three of you in this very intimate, maybe once in a lifetime, you know, moment in your life. Yeah. Um, and so that trust um, that partner has for the doula is very, is really, really critical. Um, it's critical that the doula doesn't come in and bulldoze the situation, you know, come between the birthing person and the birthing uh, partner. Um, but really is there to support them in a, you know, it really in a support role um, right. for both of them. And then, you know, tap in when the birth partner needs a little bit of a break. So That's... that I would say is the definition of a well-suited doula for a for a particular couple is somebody that really comes in, reads the room, has a pretty high social IQ so that they can kind of sure. know when to step in, when to step back, when to sit quietly, when to intervene, um, and um, when to, you know, I would I would have a lot of like hand signals um, with my, you know, I would use a lot of hand signals with my, um, in my doula uh, dynamic, um, so as not even to use my voice sometimes, which can be very distracting for a birthing person. We want to oh. keep the birthing person in the flow of what she's doing. Um, mm. And so I was, you know, I was no, I was no different than like a, you know, third base, you know, third base coach with the, you know, the hand <laughs> signals, the ear signal, whatever, um, giving signals to the partner so that, you know, so that yeah. they could be the person that is really there for their. Yeah. You know, so as, I can imagine, you know, for a first time mother, there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. And just to have that relationship with another woman who she knows has been through it, who can be that soothing, calming uh, force, unlike if you're in a hospital, nurses are coming and going, and you may have exactly. different nurses with different shifts. You have a consistent support right. emotionally there that can right, lower the right. stress, which will be better for the baby in the long run, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that that is you're a hundred percent spot on. Um, and you know, nurses play a critical role um, most of the time when a when a when a person recounts her birth story. Um, there's usually a nurse that shows up as being a her a, her a heroine, you know, that that will. Well, I shouldn't say they're mo they're not only women now. That's a crazy right. thing to say, you know, that shows up as somebody that like couldn't have done it without fill in the blank. Right. right. Which is, of course, not true. But the way that that nurse made that made that um, mom feel again, safe, secure, heard, supported understood um some sympathy some empathy you know of course goes a very long way when you're in a vulnerable moment in your life um mm -hmm. and so yeah so that's that's, that's what great. um 
And I want yeah, to ask, so you said you, you, your, your creds are, you're certified. So I assume there's a educational yeah. program oh, one yeah. needs to do. Yeah. Talk about yeah. that. And how many years have you been helping women give birth? Um, so I've been a doula for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, I have, I went through a training program um, with um, a certifying arm called DONA, which is Doulas of North America. Um, and um, so all, most in COVID, actually, this was a really interesting thing that came up because doulas were at one moment not allowed, you know, any, right. any sometimes even partners weren't allowed in uh, mm. into births during COVID, during right. height of COVID. Um, doulas certainly weren't allowed in. Um, and so they came, the, the hospitals came down with lots and lots of regulations on um, who could join a person in birth. Um, and, uh, so certify a certified doula was, you had to show all kinds of paperwork, whereas before right. you just walked in with your, you know, big birth ball and you were let in cause you were the doula and you were there to help. And most of the time people are happy to see doulas come into uh, a birth scenario because honestly it takes a lot of pressure off of the nurses, um, in terms of support explanation, um, and just presence for the birthing. Yeah, family. and I would assume so. you've done it so many times, the hospitals know you already, or at least certain the, yes, staff. Yes, yes, so. exactly, exactly. I was known in my community, absolutely. Um, I worked in a couple, of, you know, I worked in a large area, um, and yes, very, very, very familiar with um, most labor and delivery nurses in my area, certainly all the obstetrical practices, um, and um Great. Yeah. It, Great. Yeah, it, it was. And you was just lovely. mentioned bring your birth ball. What does that mean? A birth ball? <laughs> birth ball is uh, essentially a big yoga ball. I don't, you know, if you, if you, if you, it's a big giant, um, think of a, 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 a kickball, like a rubber kickball from playground days yeah. times, you know, 20, I would say. Um, it's a big, huge ball that, um, that is very, very supportive, comfortable for, mom to sit on while she's in prior to labor, while she's in labor, um, to sit on, to lean on, to use, to help move her hips around. We, you know, gravity is a birthing person's best friend. Being on your back in a bed is probably the place that is going to give you the least benefit mm. um, to having a flowing birth. Being upright or supported in an upright position is going to allow you to birth with a lot more freedom, giving obviously gravity helps the baby's head get into the right position, snuggle down into that tight space of the birth canal. Um, being on your back, there's all kinds of uh, roadblocks for the baby's body sure. and head to do what it needs to do um, to, in order Great. to exit mom's body. So, I'm glad I so asked. We like, yeah, I, yeah. I, we, Learning, learning a lot of, from you, Julie, well, already. Good, Steve. I'm glad. That's what I'm here for. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, certainly we have all kinds of tools that we use in, in birth. You know, most hospitals these days, luckily, do have, uh, do have things for women to use, but you need to know about them. You need to ask for them sometimes. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do in my communities, um, in the, in the people in the community that, that, I support um, through my business, through, you know, just just local outreach, um, sure. just to just to have people be educated, um, know what's available, use what 
use what works for them um, and just know that there are options. There's not just one way to do it. Um, yeah. And so- That's you know, gra and, great. So I wanna ask more questions. So um, what are the most common issues that people do wrong in the perinatal period that you want to alert people to pay attention to? I mean, what comes to mind for me is when I see someone pregnant and they're smoking a cigarette or they're drinking. Certainly that is not advised, yes. But most people, you know, most people know that by now. I mean, you know, does it happen? Of course it does. But everybody knows that there are consequences to that in excess, of course. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a glass of wine here and there. That is fine. That is not going to do any damage to your baby. Mm. Excessive drinking, you know, over the course of the pregnancy is absolutely going to cause right. some neurological damage to your baby. Um, you know, having a, you know, having a glass of wine or a beer. Beer, we know, is um, what's called a galactagogue. Now I'm going to put my lactation counselor hat on. Please. Beer um, is called is a galactagogue. That means um, it's a fancy word for uh, milk promoting. Um, so beer, a beer, in many cultures, it's totally appro culturally appropriate um, um, to have a dark beer, lot, beer with lots of malt. So think of, like a Guinness. Um, in Irish culture, it is absolutely standard operating procedure for women who are lactating to have a beer a day to help promote milk production. So in this the is after so birth. This is after birth. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. This is after birth. So, of course, before birth, um, you know, please stay away from it. Um, again, a glass of wine, not a problem. You know, okay. we're talking ex excess, of course, of anything is no good, um, right. really, at any time. So one more question back to, you know, giving birth, prep for sure. giving birth, and then we'll move on to the lactation uh, sure. advice. So uh, in in my mind, uh, Lamaze classes, breathing practices were a thing. Like, what's mm -hmm. the state of the art in the 21st mm, century? Great question. Great question. Breath work is absolutely something that we go to. Lamaze is still taught. Um, it is, it's not as popular as it was when I was having my kids. That was sort of the de rigueur, you know, thing that people did, mostly because there wasn't, there mm. weren't as many options as there are now. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly breath at any time, anybody who meditates, anybody who does yoga, anybody who does any, any either athletics or mindfulness knows how important breath work is. You know, when we're holding our breath, when our body is very clenched, it's not going to release what mm. it needs to release. What are we trying to release in birth? We're trying to release a baby, you know? So that's a, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Um, of course, you know, you mentioned before, you know, about fear in pregnancy, anxiety in pregnancy, you know, during pregnancy as pertains to, the labor, the birth, there is a lot of a lot of fear out there swirling. Yep. Um, it is it is certainly um, emphasized by, you know, media portrayals. Um, the medical community is not uh, unfortunately is not um, is not uh, absolved of the, also their responsibility of uh, perpetrating fear in birth. Um, 
This is very, very hard to combat in my work. Um, I do my best um, through my prenatal and postpartum support groups, through my, the, you know, my business model. Um, that is, I, you know, I, I think information is power. I think knowing makes you feel a lot, you know, knowing about all kinds of things across the spectrum of sure. what labor, what pregnancy, labor and birth could look like kind of normalizes a lot of a lot of things that might come up. And um, and so I try what I try to do with the families that I work with is take the fear out of it and replace that with, you know, with education, with information so that they can make choices that make the most sense for them. Um, right. And again, be part of the shared decision making. And that, you know, I think that does take some of the fear out of great out of birth. And or at least I hope so. That's what I, my that's what my my families tell me. So right, and talk to me uh, to our to our listeners about what happens if uh, if uh, it's decided that um, there needs to be um, you know a procedure to mm -hmm. uh, deliver if there's a complication mm -hmm. or premature, sure. and then the incubator and how you sure, try to navigate sure. that. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Well, procedures in birth are not uncommon. We call, you know, lots of things procedures or interventions um, from um, rupturing of membranes, which is a very scary way, I think, of, of, of what is what we commonly known as breaking your bag of waters, right? But rupturing of membranes sounds terrifying. Right. Sounds like something really bad's happening. Breaking your water, everybody's familiar with that, but the terminology, and I also teach this in my classes, in my community groups, um, I teach the language of what you might hear in the labor and delivery suite so that these words, rupturing of membranes, aren't as terrifying as you right. know, breaking your water. It's a natural thing that has to happen for the baby. Sure, it, 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 ha it can happen naturally, or it can happen by intervention, which is a much more invasive uh and should be a consent-based procedure. Mm -hmm. Often it is not consent-based. This is where we come into this dilemma of, right. you know, shared decision-making, permission being granted for things, and doctors not just going ahead and doing the things that they think should be the next on the continuum mm -hmm. towards birthing the baby, but letting things, you know, I, I, I try to advocate for letting things happen in their own time, in their own way. Um, I mm -hmm. think less is more. In birth, it is a highly healthy um, time of life. Pregnancy, very healthy. Birth is a very, very natural thing. The most natural thing a woman's body is built to do, perfectly built to do, I should say. Um, so, you know, again, the when when there are interventions that are needed, that are that are you know that are medically necessitated, of course, we need to go ahead and and go down that avenue are they you are you know what i what i what i think is most important steve to to really underscore is that very few uh very few interventions are emergencies there is there is not a lot of urgency of course sometimes absolutely we need to move quickly most of the time however things that happen along the continuum of labor and birth are not emergencies we can take a moment. We can take a breath or two or three. We can right. have some tears if we need to. If uh, you know, if if a uh, you know your birth is not going how you had thought, you know the in the movie of your life, 
in the movie of your birth, how you how you thought your birth was going to go. We need to take a moment to mourn that um, before we go on to, you know, how the baby is going to be born. Mm -hmm. um, cesarean section obviously comes to mind for, you know, for that. Right. Um, lots of women are, um, you know, think of that as a defeat. Think of that as they couldn't do something that their body was supposed to be able to do, that they failed somehow. Um, so, you know, in my work as a doula, in my work as a new parent educator, what I try to get across is mm. that this is just another way, another tool we have in our toolbox for babies to be born. Um, I right. like to call them belly births. You know, that's sort of the word that we use in the doula community um, mm. versus cesarean section. Um, yeah. You know, take a moment, deal with it for a minute, integrate it for a minute, understand it for a minute, have a couple of hugs and tears if you need them with your partner, you know, right. and then and then let's go. Not everything is like, you know, most things are not, you know, the urgency. There is not there are very few medical emergencies in a labor scenario. And when and we have them, we need to move quickly. Most right. of the time we can take a moment to really internalize uh -huh. it. And, and I know that that um, I get I, I believe the uh, the ideal birth doesn't require an epidural or something, but I'm sure a lot of people need that help. There, you know what I would I would I would say the ideal is you know what is an ideal birth? Right. You know, epidurals are fantastic tools. Um, I am totally for epidurals if that is what the what the ma, what the woman wants. Right. Um I I believe there is a difference Steve between pain and suffering. Ah. Pain is expected. You know, pain is expected. Everybody everybody has at some point in their life felt what physical pain feels like on some level, maybe not to the extreme that that labor demands of us and makes it has us understanding what pain is but you don't know what you can handle you right. know i try to really um educate my my families on you know sit in the wonder of it mm. it's it's there for a reason our bodies are perfectly meant to give birth right. let's let's understand why the pain might be necessary Let's really wrap our heads around what's happening in our bodies. This is why I do a lot of work prenatally with women on what's happening anatomically. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Let's understand and really, you know, be amazed at why the pain is necessary to expel a baby from our body. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I, I really I really counsel people again I, I, to sit in the wonder yeah. of what their body is doing and not question it so much, not fear it so much. And maybe you can handle more than you think you can in in my work, in my, you know, in my estimation there. If you if a, an epidural is in your birth plan, you are thinking when you're sitting in your living room and you're 20 weeks pregnant and you're 30 weeks pregnant and you're 35 weeks pregnant that you think you're going to want to have an epidural. Absolutely mm. have that. Again, mm -hmm. pain is one thing. Suffering is another thing. We don't want suffering. We have tools to to help to make it a non-suffering experience. Let's use them if we need them. There is a sweet spot. There is a time 
in the birth continuum, in the labor continuum, that in my estimation is a a, a time to shoot for, to get mm. to. And that is that uh, like five to six centimeters of dilation, of cervical dilation. You've used gravity for a long time by then. Your body is very much in the flow of labor by then. And, uh, you know, and it is getting, you know, it is getting quite painful, maybe bordering on suffering by then. So, but everybody has a different right. idea of what that means. So we have to respect that it, it is, you know, it's different for every woman. And um, sure. So know, I want to interject, if I may, my one experience that was life-changing for me. It, it took place about 40 years ago. So I'm listening to this and it's registering what was mm -hmm. 40 years ago, uh, but mm -hmm. a friend was given, going to give birth uh, mm -hmm. and uh, she knew I had studied hypnosis and mm -hmm. she had heard that hypnotherapy could reduce pain. Yeah. And, and so I taught her some self-hypnosis techniques and I thought that was all really cool. Then I get a call, I'm in labor. <laughs> please come to the house. She wanted to deliver at home, mm -hmm. um, dropped everything. And I wound up almost two days with Susanna uh, mm -hmm. and delivered Sam, mm -hmm. cesarean, I'll add. But in any case, I, I was helping her in between contractions to like go to a happy place where the mm -hmm. pain, you know, because the pain was a signal that the birth was happening, so she mm -hmm. didn't need to feel it all the time, and she could right. get a little rest in between. Mm -hmm. um, what I didn't know back then was I should have been also giving suggestions about dilation and opening mm -hmm. flowers and other kinds of things <laughs> like that. Mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. mostly focusing on the pain aspect. In any case, mm -hmm. we wound up going to the hospital and they put a fetal heart monitor on, a monitor for her, and the doctors were amazed how how good her heart rate was given, and the baby's heart rate was given how long she had been in labor. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to then do a cesarean, but there were other emergencies, so they kept putting it off because there was no fetal distress. Right. Um, but she, they weren't on a ball. She wasn't on a ball. She was in a bed. And I, and mm -hmm. I wound up, I remember having to press her back a lot. Yeah, good for you. Because she was in so much mm -hmm. pain. Of course, the, the, the father, the birth partner was there too. But I was, I was, I guess, acting in a form of what you... You do. You were a doula, Steve. But then I was in a in this operating room, and the curtain was there, and I'm watching her being opened, and I'm talking to her about walking through beautiful fields of wildflowers, <laughs> and she's mm -hmm. smiling, and I think mm -hmm. they gave her an epidural, but I I'm, I'm, I don't even remember. But I'm watching the birth of this beautiful child. I mean, beautiful. His head was kind of pointy. And mm -hmm. kind of shrivelly. And when we mm -hmm. last were together, you were talking about how so parents are not prepared for how their kids are going to look initially. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, I'm done with my story, but I'm. I just want to say, I just think that it's such a high your job to be part of this miraculous birth experience. It I is. can only imagine you get such fulfillment. It is. It is. I. It, it. I feel like the the luckiest person in the world. Um. You know, ex being present 
at a birth, first of all, it's such an honor, right? Exactly. It's like something that it's, and it's such an intimate, personal thing. You're, you know, you know, when you yeah. get to the hospital, there are lots of people around, but if you're, you know, laboring with a couple in their home, it's usually just the three of you. It's quiet. It's intimate. It's intense. You know, you're, you're working together. It yeah. is, it is, um, it is an honor. It really is an honor. And it, you're, the word fulfilling is exactly right because what could be more beautiful than to help bring a life into the world? Um, and hope, and hopefully, help the parents to start out this amazing connect, this amazing relationship, this lifelong relationship with some confidence. My business is called Nest Assured with Julie, and my tagline is turning people into confident parents. So that's what I try to do. I try to help people become confident parents because confident parents raise confident children and we we all know how that goes, right? So um, let's so dive into my, it. Let's yeah, so the, the that's birth my, is that's, happening, and the now birth is happening. Yeah, walk yeah, us through so, what you teach. Some of the elements, and and Julie teaches courses, so people. So if you are pregnant or have a friend or family member pregnant, know that that Julie you know, exists and you do courses online as well as I do. I do everything online. Yeah. My business is called Nest Assured with Julie. Anybody who's listening can find me at nestassuredwithjulie.com. Yeah. We'll Um, put it all on the blog there. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. But um, yeah, my classes start my class on um, living. I, I, so in my work as a doula, obviously lots and lots of time, education, and emphasis was placed on pregnancy, labor, birth. And then everyone kind of forgot that they also had to bring this baby home with them, right? So my court, I, I teach a class called Nest Assured, which is about living with a zero to three-month-old. So from the moment your baby is born, literally you alluded to it before, what does a newborn baby even look like? In my work as a doula, I experienced far too many people going, yeah, like, you know, the pointy head, there's a lot of stuff. There's there's stuff all over the baby. There's blood potentially. Um, you know, there's there's lots of lots of fluid birth fluids. You know, things sure. are a bit of a, a you know can be can be quite. Uh, it's not the like Gerber baby. You know that comes out <laughs> wrapped up in a beautiful swaddle. You know. Right. Um. So I I I'm very candid about that, of course, because I don't want anybody to start off this again this lifelong relationship going. Like right. that. I want everybody to be kind of prepared about what a newborn baby could look like. Right. Um, so, yeah, so that I, I start there, Steve. And I, you know, again, I try to, again, information is power. If you know and it's a normal thing and it normalizes it, then then that, you mm-hmm. know, then that then then you start off feeling, OK, this is OK. This is common. This is this is what I uh, what I'm anticipating. Right. And therefore, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, surprise to it. Right. So, so talk gonna... about lactation and do's and don'ts. You taught me something sure. about dark beer and Irish. Is like, sure. Dark I'm... beer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in moderation again. But mm. yes. Um, but um, so once your baby is born, you know, I encourage, I always encourage to start that bonding, which is so important. Start that bonding right away. Um, 
we know that um, from a from a brain chemistry point of view, women, moms, birthing person, brain chemistry changes along the course of her pregnancy. Sure. Through what we call, there's a great term um, uh, that is being, there's a great kind of field of study now that actually has a name. Hallelujah. Um, it's called matrescence. Um, hmm. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard that. Nope. That word, M-A-T-R-E-S-C-E-N-C-E. It sort of sounds like adolescence. Matrescence is literally becoming a mother. Ah. The, 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 the season of your life that you become a mother. Mm. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of new study on that. A lot of, um, a lot of, it, it actually, um, there's some really interesting Ted talks. I can, I can, uh, send you some links for those. You can Great. add them, um, about really what happens, what's happening to, the birthing person, what's happening to the mom in the process of becoming a mother. Her body is changing. Her skin is breaking out. She's having hormonal headaches. She is not, you know, she doesn't recognize herself. Her mood swings are kind of all over the place. Sounds like adolescence, right? Mm. Everybody understands what that's like. Well, matrescence sort of is like that too. You're learning this. You're, 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 you're moving to a new phase, a new chapter that comes with lots of responsibility, that comes with lots of permissions, that comes with lots of uh lots of new new and um new and expected behaviors of you that maybe you're not really ready to to understand or embrace. And people think they should feel that right away. They should feel if your baby's in your arms, you should feel like a mother right away. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. If you don't, you're not bonding with your baby. If you don't, you're having postpartum depression. If you don't, you're not meant to, to be a mother. Well, that's just patently untrue. This is something that takes time. It takes, it takes evolution. It takes learning and understanding. And that can happen for the mom during the course of the pregnancy. I suggest starting skin to skin right after birth or as immediately after right. birth as you can get it if your baby is born via C-section, belly birth. Just get your baby on your skin as, as soon as you possibly can mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and get that connection started. Will you maybe not feel, you know, that surge of love, that bonding, that, you know, that totally wide eyed feeling that we see in movies? You might not. And that's okay. And that's normal too. And that, because it takes time and, you know, these things are the things that are worth it take time. And so, you know, to, to just understand that there is a timeline sometimes on this connection, on this bonding for men, we know men don't experience that, um, that brain chemistry change until the moment that they see their babies born. Mm. Once a man sees his baby born, there is a huge chemical shift in his brain. Um, if it's a man, it's usually a huge surge of testosterone, even if it's a, if it's a woman, also a huge surge of testosterone, that protective, you know, that a, a little bit aggressive, like don't come near my, you know, don't come near my my family. Don't forget, we are our cave. I always say this in my classes: we are our, our cave people self, right? You know, <laughs> we we all had to be running away from the woolly mammoth. We weren't all laying in a hospital bed, you know, right? Getting right. like lavender, you know, lavender foot massages, you know. 
cave people <laughs> gave birth and they had to run. They had to protect their baby. The woolly mammoth was or the saber-toothed tiger was right on their right mm. on their tail. So the men typically had to be the protector. Right. Women had to have a big surge of lots of times women right after they give birth, they shudder, they shake. Mm. We often, you know, I think it's a really interesting anthropological question. Why does this happen? You know, a lot of it is explained um, from adrenaline that has been really coursing through your body, kind sure. of coming down and simmering down after the baby is born. Um, a lot of people explain it as it has to be this like this kind of you shake your your body, your brain has to shake awake a little bit because the mm. last the last phase of birth is very, very inward. It's very intense for the woman, the pushing phase. Um, mm. So there's a very, very inward kind of it's an inward moment, you know, chapter of the birthing process. Um, mm -hmm. So that shaking kind of awakes the woman to the fact that her baby is here. Her baby is on her. Uh -huh. um, and also it's such a tectonic change in your sure. life. It has to have there has to be a physical manifestation of I was that. 30 seconds ago and now i'm this yeah you know because it you know birth that that's what birth that's what birth does right it changes Definitely. you in, at your core so i'm a little um, so it's i'm a little envious as a guy that yeah, guys can't yeah. have this experience i don't yes, know yes i don't know that i don't know that every woman would it would concur that you know i think a lot of women wish men could give birth but yeah i don't blame you you should be jealous it is a pretty awesome thing it, it's a pretty incredible thing to be able to do and you know my job is to help women recognize how incredible it is to give birth yeah. and not that it's a chore or a have to or but you get to you're allowed to because you have the the body parts to be able to do it yep. so um so let me ask a couple of other i mean observations or just ideas that are flowing from this sure. conversation so i have to you said you like the skin touch but i have to imagine the child hearing your heartbeat smelling your well, you smelling the child and i have to imagine a lot of people will be talking to their baby or exactly. singing to their baby. Talk, talk a little bit more about yeah. that and what the birth partner can do in those early yeah, moments. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So we like to, I, you know, I like to encourage people to use all their senses, especially their voice, which mm. you, you really hit the nail on the head. Babies, are, they're, they are, their sense of hearing is the most developed at birth. We know that babies, um, uh, start to be able to hear at about five months of gestation. Mm. Um, and so uh, they already are familiar with their mother's voices. They are already pretty familiar with their father's voices, if that's the voice that they hear most second mm -hmm. to their mother's. Um, or, their, you know, uh, they hear music. They hear, you know, of course, all the body sounds that is are going on inside in, in utero, mom's blood is flowing, mom's heart is beating, gases are moving around, voices, environmental sounds. So babies live in a very noisy environment. Mm. That's why when, uh, you know, a babe, we recommend a sound machine in the presence of wherever the baby's going to be sleeping to help soothe the baby. And what do we do? Let me grab a little baby here. What do we do when we have a baby in our arms? What do we do? We don't just stand there. We go, shh. 
And you rock back and forth. You rock back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we're naturally coded to do. That's total learned behavior on the part of human beings. Because why? Because babies soothe to movement. Uh, Babies soothe to repeated rhythmic sound because that's what was going on in utero. I never knew that. That's so fascinating. Of course that When we're trying to sue the baby, we're not holding the baby out here, right? We're tucking the baby in. We Sometimes we swaddle a baby, which has the baby's arms and legs tucked in because mm-hmm. babies flail. Babies are used to being in very tight spaces. Mm. So to soothe the baby, we want to recreate that womb-like environment for them in mm. order to help them soothe and, and quiet down. Um, you know, babies need touch. Babies need touch. It's part of what how we develop secure attachment. So that skin to skin, mm-hmm. you know, which we talked about before, which you just asked me about, so important. That's, you know, that's that kind of touch they need. They sure. also just need being held, being stroked, being reassured. Um, we know that babies that are born into orphanages, for instance, who do not have access to lots and lots of touch, Later on in life, you know, at really have trouble sometimes bonding, attaching, Definitely. trusting, you know. And so uh, that is something that we we know about, about children that have that kind of beginning to their life. Yeah, neglect. Um, A lot of my, my clientele who are born in cults, that it's not done properly, not proper medica- medical support. Right. And the kid is, right. you know, the child is often like, Treated like an object, even or yeah. treated like an yeah. adult, like, farmed off imagine. to somebody else, and people exit, and they're like, "I don't know who I am, and I don't know who I can trust." And yeah, and the good news is people can learn how to rewire their neurons. And, right, and well, and, that's where you come in, yeah. yeah, which is which is wonderful. But you know, how much better off would we be if we got that right from right from the get go? Well, that's by through the power of touch, through the power of our voices, familiarity. I tell people all the time, people think people say, why, why am I going to read a newborn baby a book? Why am I going to sing to a newborn baby? Like, or why, you know, why am I going to talk to a newborn baby? Babies, be, again, b- their sense of hearing is the most developed mm. at birth. They are familiar with our voices. We want to use our voices as a tool, right? So that they know if they can hear our voice, they are safe and secure. If they're on the other side of the room asleep in the bassinet and they wake up and we haven't heard them stirring or whatever and they cry to us, you know, on the way over, you know, to the baby, mommy's on her way. I'll be right there. I'm coming. I love you. I'll be right there to you. You know, I'll be right there for you. I'm coming. And they, hearing that, they can begin to soothe. So those really alert, on guard, um, you know, hormones, adrenaline, cortisol that happen when babies cry can start to soothe down at the, you know, in the presence of somebody that they know, somebody that they, that they know and trust. Right. In the presence of their voice. They know they can start to calm and soothe to that. So great to read, great to sing, great to, you know, do a monologue of your day. I mean, people, you know, people tell me I I feel crazy. I'm just like talking to my baby. You know, I'm going to the refrigerator. I'm taking something out of the refrigerator. I'm pouring myself some water. I'm putting the water bottle back in the refrigerator. You know, but this is what babies need. This is what they need to hear, first of all, for language development, 
well, secondly, for language development, first for establishing, you know, security and yeah, and, I would imagine it's good for the parent to to have that relationship where they're already interacting. So, is it true that that um, breastfeeding is so important if you can do it? And absolutely, because absolutely. of hormones, because of of sure, antibodies, sure. and mm-hmm. talk about. So that. we say, you know, I will say, you know, fed is best. Whatever way you need to feed your baby, you want to feed your baby. That's that whatever. Whatever works for you is also going to be fine for your baby. Mm-hmm. However, we know there are so many benefits to breast milk. Um, you know, starting with colostrum, which is which mom starts making um, in her breast tissue uh, during her pregnancy. It is available to the baby in the first moments of mm. the baby's life. Um, colostrum is where all the antibodies are, all the immune factor is. And most importantly for newborns, all the white blood cells, because babies, again, are prehistoric selves, right? Let's not forget we were out in the, uh, on the, you know, on the Velt one, you know, not too long ago. Um, White blood cells, what do they do? They fight infection. Babies were very susceptible to dying of infection because they were not, you know, living in clean sanitary and, you know, environments. Nowadays, our babies are born into much more sanitary conditions. Um, Nonetheless, the colostrum does provide a great, great base for fighting infection, sets up the gut microbiome for better digestion of food later on in, you know, in life. Um, And we know that colostrum transitions to mature milk around day three or four of the baby's life. Mature milk has the perfect combination of proteins, fats, hormones, minerals, vitamins, Mm -hmm. immunofactors. Um, And what's so cool, Steve, is that breast milk is perfectly curated for that baby on that feed on that day of that baby's life. Mm. It changes composition based on the information that mom's brain is getting from the baby's saliva saliva wow. through the mammary glands. Mm. So it changes composition. If baby is going to go start into a growth spurt, well, the proteins go up, the fats go up. The, Fascinating. It's, it's so I never cool. knew if a that. baby is, yeah. If a baby starts, if the information comes to mom brain, mom's brain that there's a little bit of shift in, um, in, uh, in the blood cell, in the white blood cells, maybe baby starting to get a cold or you know fighting off a stomach bug or something. Mm. Well, up go those white blood cells in the breast milk so that the baby can help fight off, um, you know, whatever it might be. Women are really, really trying to breastfeed, especially through this season right now where we're experiencing COVID, we're experiencing RSV, which is really, really a big problem for babies right now. Um, it, we happen to be, it's coming down a little bit right now, thankfully, but in the fall, late fall and early winter, November and December, RSV was rampant. Lots mm. of babies were getting very, very sick. Women were desperate to maintaining their breastfeeding relationships because of the protection that it can afford a newborn and really any age baby. So um, So, breastfeeding, of course, has so many benefits to mom and baby. So we're- I could go on. I could go on. That's like a whole nother thing, Steve. That's like almost too much to unpack. may need to do a a part two. We have about 10, you know, 15 minutes. But I I really want to ask about 
sleep and old recommendations for sleep, let your kid cry. And so they learn how to be, you know, independent. You're shaking your head for our podcast shaking my listeners. Head. Yes, yes. I'm shaking my head about that. We um we do not recommend that anymore. There is a so that that idea of secure attachment that we uh, that we that we have been alluding to, um, we know that that is that is parents' most important job in the first three months of their baby's life. Hmm. Um, the first three months is critical. Brain development is exponential at that time. Right. The baby is really really ripe for uh, for setting down the this sort of setting down the foundation for secure attachment in the first three months of their life. It is so important, so critical. Again, no pressure, but literally every single relationship that the that the child has for the rest of her life will really be predicated on how she is treated, how secure attachment is established in the first three months of, of her life. Mm-hmm. It is a huge concept. It seems like a lot of pressure on parents. But in reality, and it is in a way, but in reality, it's very easily accomplished. We accomplish it by responding to our babies, our children in a timely fashion, right? So that means no excessive, not letting them excessively cry and with love and with kindness, with a soothing voice, with a calm voice, you know, not yelling, not raising our voices. So we watch for our baby's cues. Babies will cue us about all the things that they need, which aren't that many. They need to be fed. They need to be uh, you know, they need to be kept clean. They need to have, they like, you know, a certain body temperature, not too cold, not too hot. Um, they're tired, you know, sleep. They need our help to sleep. So babies really, un, you know, contrary to popular belief, sleeping like a baby is a total misnomer. Babies are terrible <laughs> sleepers. They need our help to Mm. To know that they are safe. Again, the woolly mammoth is coming at any moment. Mm. They need our help to be able to have those alert hormones, that cortisol, that adrenaline be at their lowest. Great. So that they can drift off to sleep. When are those when are those hormones at their lowest? When they're on us or when they're near us. So does that mean sleeping in the bed with mom is a good idea? So great, great question. Um, You know, that is not the American Academy of Pediatrics does not um, does not support uh, does not encourage what we call bed sharing, um, which is where the baby is sleeping on the same surface as the parents. Um, Rather, we um, we suggest the American Academy of Pediatrics likes to uh, call it room sharing. So baby is in the same room, but not on the same bed surface, sleep surface as the parents. So most parents will have a bassinet or a little sidecar kind of thing attached, you know, that's very close to their bed. So the baby can be very close. The baby can smell the parents, hear the parents mm-hmm. be, you know, someone can always reach over and touch the baby, you know, you know, for reassurance or whatever. Um, and the baby is close by. That is where babies will sleep, you know, the best. The best. When, and they, I assume... when they when they want to be separated. Generally, a newborn doesn't want to be put down. So every, you know, so often people will say to me, the baby was sound. I fed the baby. I burped the baby. The baby was sound asleep. I went to put the baby down and the baby, you know, the baby's now awake. 
Uh, you know, right. and this is, you know, babies don't like to sleep separate from us. They want to sleep on right. us or near us. So, yep. you know, we know that, you know, I mean, I'm digressing a little bit, but we the the American Academy of Pediatrics has a um, a, a public health initiative. It started in the mid 90s. It's called the Back to Sleep campaign. We know since we initiated the Back to Sleep campaign that SIDS um, or SUID, Sudden Unexpected Infant Death Syndrome, has completely plummeted. Um, oh. We we are. I'm very happy to to share that only. I shouldn't say only. One tenth of one tenth of one percent of all live births will succumb to a SIDS death, mm. um, which is tremendous. I mean, which is fantastic change. Um, In the right direction. And so, right. and we attribute that to the back to sleep campaign. We put babies to sleep on their back for every sleep um, and on a proper sleep surface. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that, you know, I really try to normalize, you know, having babies sleep on you? Again, baby is going to be most comfortable, most, most soothed, to get to sleep, being on or near somebody that loves her. Um, and so that's a little bit of, that is something sure. that babies learn as they mature neurologically. So in the first three months of your life, you can count on holding your baby quite a bit. Uh -huh. um, again, you need it. Your baby needs it. That's where secure attachment sets up. Everything, there's a reason for everything. None of the things that are, none of the things that, that babies manifest are by accident. There's it, there's a reason for everything. It's really important to understand that and mm -hmm. to really again sit in the wonder of what is happening because mm -hmm. there. If you think about it, you decode, you unpack it, you ask an expert. There is a reason for all infant behaviors. So, um, approximately how many times will a baby, a newborn, need to be fed? throughout the night? And what do parents do if they feel sleep deprived and they get Yeah, cranky? great question. Great question. So baby infants um, in the first several weeks of their life uh, need to be fed, um, again, with my lactation counselor hat on, and this goes for breast or bottle fed babies, um, about 12 times a day. Mm -hmm. So that equates to obviously about every two hours. So I'll speak about breastfeeding for a moment um, to, to establish the milk supply, to establish that the supply meets the demand of the baby. The breast tissue needs to be stimulated to give the brain the information that it needs. We know that draining the breasts about every two hours will give that, will start that cycle of information going, will, will, assure that mom's demand meets it mom's supply meets baby's demand mm -hmm. um so yeah every two hours um in the first week several weeks of the baby's life certainly until the baby surpasses birth weight um we we want the baby to be fed every couple of hours and again as that breast milk supply is being developed mm -hmm. um once the baby has surpassed birth weight and is you know maybe sleeping, you know, a couple of, you know, maybe three hours in the overnight period. I always say, you know, babies, once they get their 24-hour caloric needs met during what is considered to be our daytime, they will start to sleep longer overnight. Um, oh, that's but, interesting. You know, but in the but in the first weeks of their life, there there is no such thing as day and night. Although another amazing, mind-blowing, incredible breast milk fact is that B 
between 3 p.m. and 3 a.m., mom's milk will have more melatonin in it in order to help the baby organize day and night and have the baby be soothed for, you know, longer overnight sleep. Mm. Um, and And the quality of breast milk. Um, it's thicker. It's more. It's heavier from breast milk made from three a.m. So three a.m. to three p.m. is considered daytime mm-hmm. in my work. Um, three p.m. three p.m. to three a.m. is considered nighttime. So daytime milk is thicker. It's more calorically rich. Nighttime milk is a little bit thinner, mm-hmm. um, easier to digest. Therefore, less digestive issues in the overnight when baby is more likely to be. Got you know, it. To be laying down. So, so uh, I am aware that some women uh, use uh, breast pumps to store mm-hmm. some milk, and then their mm-hmm. per- partner can trade off and feed the sure. the infant. Talk a little sure. bit about that. We're going to need to wrap up in a few minutes, but this is yeah, fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, breast pumps are a great tool when used at the right time for the right reason. We often go to the breast pump a little too early in my estimation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, a pumping milk, um, it, the breast pump, if for those that are not familiar, it's like a, a, a it's, uh, it's, it's like a vacuum like a, device, a funnel, like a funnel that fits on over the mother's uh, breast tissue, areola and nipple and has a vacuum function to it. And, kind of stimulates the breast in the same way that the baby's sucking motion does, although not really, because pumps are not as good pumpers as babies are suckers. Babies get <laughs> babies get much more milk out of the breast than pumps do, which is a which is really important to know because we can't see what we're feeding our baby from the breast. Right. We just have to trust and there's lots of markers and we can again go into that in an, in a part B if you'd like. Yeah. But pumps, there is that visual confirmation that I am making milk. I am providing for my baby. There is a lot of validation there for women. Or on the flip side, if it doesn't, if you don't seem like you're making an abundant amount of milk, it could really kind of mess with you and make you feel like you're not doing what you want. But but it's a great tool, sure, you know, for the partner to be able to take some of the responsibility of the feeding that can be very heavy for mom, that she is the one and only sole source of, of nutrition for the baby. If Mm. they're choosing to exclusively breastfeed or feed breast milk. Um, But, you know, it's Uh, no easier or, I mean, you know, some people, if they can breastfeed, find that breastfeeding is just so much easier than dealing with pump you know pump parts and setting it up and finding a time and sanitizing and storing and freezing and then sanitizing the bottle and then heating up the bottle and now the baby's crying while the bottle is heating it's a lot easier to take your shirt up and put your baby on your breast and it's always clean it's always the right temperature and it's always there so you know there is there is this idea that oh i just want my partner to be able to feed my baby i need a break from it but there's so many other, you know, so, so many other components to it, of right. course, that people don't always take into account. But that, that's again, that's what I try. That's what sure. I, I like I said, information is power. Knowing knowing that you have choices and options is very liberating. Um, whether they actually are easier for you is, you know, obviously a personal, a yeah. personal choice. But and, and I always contend there's lots and lots of other things that dad or partner can do. 
take over. You can change every single diaper. You can do every bath time. You I did can, it. You know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, anyway. feeding. Yeah, of course. I mean, feeding is only one thing. Babies right. need our help with a lot of things. So, right. you know, so there's a lot to do. Um, so we're going to need to wrap up. This has been sure. fantastic. I just want to comment, listening to you, um, I it, it seems clear that if you have a newborn and you're out and about, you should be carrying them in a pouch on your chest instead of baby in a baby wearer, carriage. Yeah. Sure, yep. So they have the that warmth is very, yep, and the, yep, hear the, the heartbeat warmth. and you can yep. talk to your baby. And yep, that is that is what babies that babies love. I mean, look, you know, babies love being in in strollers too. But when they're little, little, and also for like you said, body temperature regulation, yeah. um, keeping them close, especially now with COVID and germs and RSV and all that, when people prefer to have their baby, there is sort of like a natural, like, okay, you stay over there, you can talk right. to me, but I don't want your germs on my baby, as opposed to somebody kind of leaning over a stroller and. Right. You know, a lot of times there's not there. It's a little bit more comfortable. So, Julie Hartman, I've learned a lot and I want to give you the last summary words. To the last the, word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the last word is educate yourself, guys. You know, educate yourself. Know and understand what the reasons for baby why they act the way they do it's not for no reason they don't just cry to drive us crazy and be malicious they cry because they need something from us they need us to help them with with something i mean our babies are born as needy beings um we're not giraffes in the wild you know that get up and run you know run away our babies um, need need help from us. And it is our job as parents to provide that to the best of our abilities. Um, certainly learning beforehand, before your baby's born, why babies act the way they do, how they act, knowing and anticipating can make that whole bonding process smoother, e you know, more easy to understand and really, really like take a little, you know, take again, birth should not, there should not be fear around birth. Um, there should not be fear around uh, around parenting, although, yes, can it be, you know, can there be moments of it? Of course. Um, but let's try to, you know, do the work, do a little bit of work before to make that transition into this glorious but vulnerable new chapter in your life um, a little Great. bit more seamless. Thank yeah. you. So nestassuredwithjulie.com is your website. and. It is. Um, I'm just yeah. really appreciative of you sharing your wisdom and knowledge. And you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been wonderful, and I really appreciate your listeners. Um, yeah, your listeners listening. <laughs> yeah. So the 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 future is our children, and understanding how to raise securely attached children, mm -hmm. it gives them that that foundation for healthy adult development. And, um, and when they don't have that, then a lot of what happens is compensation strategies that can manifest in not so healthy ways. Uh, there, it's nowadays more fixable because we understand more just mm -hmm. how neuroplastics, plasticity works and neurogenesis works. But um, uh, thank you so much for, for doing what you do and being who you are, Julie. 
You're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time today. And I appreciate the chance to speak to your listeners. Pleasure. Take care. Bye. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.